page 20 um, is the full text of verses 1 through 14. I'm just going to read verses 3 through 7. <clears throat> Hear God's holy and errant word. And I will give authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees, even the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire comes out of their mouths and consumes their enemies. So if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this way. They have authority to shut up the sky so that no rain falls during the days of their prophecy. And they have authority over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every plague as often as they wish. When they finish their witness, the beast of prey that comes up out of the abyss will make war with them, overcome them, and kill them. Father, we thank you for your word. It is uh, uh, such a privilege to own multiple copies of your scriptures in our homes, and uh, we value that. We value your illumination that helps us to understand your word, and your illumination that helps us to understand the, the world around us. Uh, even as Rodney uh, started this service with uh, mentionings of the illumination was given uh, to Harriet. Uh, and uh, we pray, Father, you would bless uh, this, your people, with a facility for handling your scriptures and uh, that you would open the eyes of our understanding now as we dig into your scriptures. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, let me give you a, a tiny uh, review of where we have been in the last uh, two sermons. We saw that verse 1 deals with the measuring of a literal first century temple in Jerusalem uh, for what would be destroyed and what would be preserved. And so the court outside the temple would be preserved for Roman use but the temple itself, the part that was measured, would be so completely destroyed that not one stone would be left upon another. And we saw that this measuring took place three and a half years before the temple was burned. Verse 2 deals with what will happen after the temple is burned in AD 70. The Gentile Romans would occupy the outer, the courts that are outside the temple, they would occupy the city. Uh, for 42 months, in other words, from AD 70 through to the beginning of AD 74, and then they would leave, and they did. So verse 1 is really introducing the first three and a half years of the war. Verse 2, the, giving us an overview of the second three and a half years. So those two put together is the seven-year war of the Romans against uh, Israel. You can kind of think of them as an introduction to the whole chapter. Then verse 3 goes back to AD 67 and shows that God did not leave Jerusalem without a witness, without a prophetic warning uh, during that period. In February of AD 67, God sent these two prophets into Jerusalem to testify against that city and to offer the gospel. Now, to me, that's just a, an incredible thing that even at that late stage, after how long have they been rebelling against God? He still gives them opportunity to repent. He still uh, preaches uh, repentance to them. He is so gracious. So about the time that Christians have left the city, these two prophets are entering into the lion's lair. And that these were two literal human prophets who literally prophesied in literal Jerusalem in the first century, I think, was adequately proved in uh, the last two sermons. I'm not going to cover that material again. Their ministry ended just before the temple was destroyed, and that too had been prophesied in the Old Testament. You can think of Daniel and Isaiah and uh, Zechariah, and there were others who uh, gave this uh, foreshadowing that the prophetic activity would go all the way up to the time when the temple would be destroyed, and then it would permanently end. So that gives the context of where we are at today. And I don't want to have to prove those points all over again. I just want to dive into the nature of the prophetic work of these two witnesses. Uh, now, verses 3 through 7, the verses we just read, are almost 
totally ignored in the literature, the debates that go back and forth uh, on New Testament prophecy and its nature. And I think it's unfortunate because I think this is really, really important material. Now, I already dealt with a complete cessation of New Testament prophecy in chapter 1, verse 3, and again in chapter 10, uh, verse 7. Uh, chapter 10 says that just before the seventh trumpet would be about to blow, just before that, all prophetic mystery revelation would cease. Well, the seventh trumpet blows in verse 15 in our chapter. And uh, when were the others killed? You know, three and a half days earlier, they were killed. So just before the trumpet blows, this prophetic activity ceases. So this chapter is actually looking at the last two of the New Testament prophets. And I think if Revelation 10 through 11 would be taken seriously in the debates on cessationism versus continuationism, I think it would settle the debates. I really do. And the reason I say that is because this chapter completely overturns Wayne Grudem's view of the nature of New Testament prophecy. Now, he's written a few books trying to um, theologically salvage the charismatic movement. He claims that New Testament prophecy is utterly different from Old Testament prophecy. Where Old Testament prophecy was inspired, he says New Testament prophecy is not. Where Old Testament prophecy was the very words of God being communicated to God's people verbatim, he, he claims that New Testament prophets can make mistakes uh, without being false prophets and that they did not speak God's very words and therefore, quote, have no absolute divine authority. Now, those are his words. I think they did have authority, but those are his words. And I can appreciate why uh, third wave charismatics play down the authority of New Testament prophets. They have seen the incredible abuses of modern so-called prophets and they know, and Wayne Grudem talks about that, they, they know that this has the potential for completely undermining the authority of the Scripture. And I've seen it happen. Um, the, the reasoning of some of the self-proclaimed prophets in Kansas City and a couple of prophets here that I've interacted with in Omaha, uh, they have explicitly said that the Scripture is authoritative but not infallible. And the apostles are authoritative, but not infallible. And the reason they say that is to preserve their own prophecies, which they claim are authoritative, but not infallible. They make mistakes, but they point to the scriptures and say, well, the Old Testament made mistakes, New Testament makes mistakes, apostles made mistakes. And so uh, it completely messes up their view of the scripture, uh, their misinterpretation of prophecy. So third-wave charismatics are trying to theologically salvage that, and you can understand why they're gun-shy of that, and their claim is that New Testament prophecy has no resemblance to Scripture, to the apostles, or to the Old Testament prophets. Now, if prophecy continues, they either have to say that, or they have to say that prophecy today is infallible. There really is no in-between logically. Now, I praise the Lord. They're trying to protect the integrity of the Scripture, but we've already seen that it's much better to see that the Scripture itself has said that apostleship and prophecy would cease in A.D. 70 and that the Bible, from that point on, would be completed, the perfect final word of God. Everything that we and the charismatics experience, and we experience premonitions and promptings and guidance and we experience all of these same things, uh, we can praise God that God works through us. I call it illumination, but it's on an altogether different level than prophecy, and we should not call those things uh, prophecy. So we're going to be looking this morning at the nature of the prophecy of these two New Testament prophets, and just think of this as a case study. Which theory stands up to this case, case history of prophecy? Which one shows the true nature of prophecy? Now, the first point in your outlines says that the prophecies of these two witnesses was, were clearly uh, uh, authoritative. Verse 3 begins by saying, And I will give authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy. Now, the Greek 
grammar indicates that the clauses mirror each other and interpret each other, or as Lang's commentary words it, what he gave them is declared by what follows. It's kind of a Hebraic uh, uh, construction. So giving them authority is explained by they will prophesy, and their prophecy is seen as God's direct gift or his direct authority. It's an authoritative prophesying. And so you'll see throughout uh, this uh, chapter that he keeps speaking of their authority, God giving them uh, authority. As Beale's commentary points out, they are to be prophets like the great prophets of the Old Testament, like Moses and Elijah, verses 4 through 6. Now, even if you don't know the Greek, I think that it'll become pretty obvious as we go through this that Beale is absolutely right because he compares the New Testament prophets to the Old Testament prophets over and over again. We're going to look at some of these examples. These two are called my witnesses. Now, this word is a legal term used over and over to refer to either a prosecutor or a witness who is coming against, testifying against an accused in a court case. And many books have pointed out that this was the central function of prophets in the Old Testament. Let me give you the definition of the Greek word martus, which is uh, translated here as witness. And you're going to hear the sound martus as I read some of these different things because it all deals with courtroom drama. So, marturia is court testimony. Martureo means to testify. Marturion is the evidence presented in court. Dia marturamai is the solemn charge given to a witness that he must tell the truth when he testifies, okay? Kata martureo is the testimony or the charges brought against someone. Sumartoreo is the opposite. It's the supporting testimony of a defendant. Pseudomartoreo is, is to bear false witness in a court, and pseudomartoria and pseudomartus refer to the false witnesses or a prosecutor who is bringing charges, false charges against an innocent party. But you can hear that word, martus, in the middle of all of those. They are all tied up. They're legal terms used in the courtroom. Concerning the classical Greek definition of those terms, the New International Dictionary of New Testament Theology says this, the original setting of the word group in the Greek world is clearly the legal sphere. Witnesses appear to give evidence in a trial in respects of events now lying in the past or are called in as so-called formal witnesses in order to provide substantiation in the future for legal transactions. Now, in your outline, I've given you some examples of Old Testament prophets acting as witnesses of the prosecution against the accused in the courtroom of heaven. And actually, the, we saw in chapter 1 that the apostle John calls the whole book of Revelation a martyria. It's the courtroom evidence that he's presenting against Israel and against the nations in the covenant lawsuits that he is going to be uh, bringing against them. So that's a word that ties these prophets in with the function, at least, of Old Testament prophets and actually with the function that the Apostle John engaged in. Now, verse 3 goes on. It says, And they will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. Now, I already dealt with the 1,260 days, but why were they clothed in sackcloth? You might say, Well, it's because they're in mourning. And that would be a logical deduction because sackcloth was often worn for mourning, but that doesn't appear to be the case here. So almost all of the commentaries say that what's going on here is these prophets are being likened to the Old Testament prophets who wore these coarse garments uh, that are called sackcloth, prophets like Elijah and Isaiah and John the Baptist. And I've given you some references there. Zechariah 13.4 assumes that all prophets would wear this sackcloth at least in some of their functions as a prophet. So to have these prophets wear sackcloth ties them in with the Old Testament prophets. They seem to be of the same class. In verse 4, they are said to be the two olive trees. 
Now, that's a clear reference to Zechariah chapter 4, where God called the prophets Zerubbabel and Joshua his olive trees. Now, the olive tree is a symbol of the Holy Spirit speaking because olive trees produce olive oil, and olive oil was a symbol of the Holy Spirit. So the words that flowed from Zerubbabel and Joshua in the Old Testament were the unadulterated prophetic words of God. It's the Holy Spirit speaking through him. Now, the point that I'm making is this, as I go through these, these comparisons. If John wanted to distance the New Testament prophets from the Old Testament prophets, as if this is a totally new concept, a new definition of the word prophecy, like Wayne Grudem wants to make it out to be, why would he keep comparing them to the Old Testament prophets? Can you see where I'm going on that? And people say, well, maybe they were apostles. We don't have a problem with that if they were apostolic prophets. But the problem is he didn't call them apostles here. He calls them prophets, and he's going to be defining the nature and the meaning of prophecy, not apostleship. And he does so several more times. In the second part of verse 4, they are said to be the two lampstands that represent the Lord. And the word the at the beginning of the phrase indicates by the time that this prophecy is going to be fulfilled, they're going to be the, the last two lampstands standing, the last two left. It's another way of saying that, um, you know, if they're, if they're the olive trees, the two olive trees, the two uh, lampstands, they're the last two olive trees, last two lampstands, they're the last two representatives who are giving God's prophetic word to the population in AD 70. And that the phrase, the two lampstands, refers to prophets can be seen by the subpoints in your outline which show other places where this same Greek word is used. Uh, these are not general lampstands that represent the Bible, okay? That's what we do. We represent the Bible to the word, uh, world, and so in that sense, we are lights. But these are standing before the Lord. They're the actual givers of that revelation, okay? Exactly the same word is used of John the Baptist. John 6, 35 through 36 says, He was the burning and shining lampstand... Luchnos, exactly the same Greek word, and you were willing for a time to rejoice in his light, but I have a greater witness than John's. So Jesus is a witness, it's a technical term, he's a witness and a lamp that is much greater than John's, and yet John too was a witness and a lampstand. Second Peter 1 likens the prophetic scriptures to a lampstand. It says, but we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as to a light. Now that's Luknas, as to a lampstand. So you can see there the authority that lampstands have. It's not a non-authoritative illumination. This is a, an authoritative inspiration. So he says, which you do well to heed as to a lampstand that shines in a dark place. So the apostles who gave prophetic scripture are lampstands uh, to give the prophetic word. So if these two witnesses are God's two last lampstands that stand before his presence, what's going on? He's comparing them to John the Baptist. He's comparing them to the apostles. He's comparing them to the scripture and saying their light is of the same character as the light that comes in the Holy Scriptures, the prophetic scriptures that Second Peter talks about. That argues so strongly against Wayne Grudem's thesis. The next words in verse 4 indicate that the witnesses themselves stand before the Lord of the earth. Now, in the Jewish mind, this would have immediately clued to those hundreds of passages in the Old Testament that said that the prophets are part of God's heavenly council. They are caught up into the council in heaven. Uh, they talk with the angels of heaven. Okay, they, 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 they stand before the Lord and they represent the Lord. So this is not a general, you know, I think the Lord is leading us to do something kind of people. No, these are thus saith the Lord kinds of people. They are prophetically caught up and they, they receive revelation directly from the Lord. Just like the Apostle uh, John earlier in this book was caught up to the throne room of God. He was a part of the heavenly council and he receives revelation uh, from the Lord. Now, with all of the other allusions to Elijah, and especially with the allusion to these prophets drying up the rain at their command, at their prophecy, the rain stops, 
Almost all the commentaries say that they're being probably compared here to the statement made by Elijah to Ahab when he said, As the Lord God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years except at my word. He says, Before whom I stand. So prophets like Elijah stood before the Lord. Verse 5 says that like the prophets Elijah and Jeremiah, these witnesses have the power to consume their enemies with fire directed from their mouths. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire comes out of their mouths and consumes their enemies. So if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this way. Now virtually every commentary that I own says that this is a clear reference and comparison to the prophet Elijah and most of them say also to Jeremiah, but to the prophet Elijah. I don't think there's any disagreement on the Elijah connection. In 2 Kings chapter 1, Ahab sent out groups of 50 soldiers to capture Elijah. He was really ticked off with Elijah having cut off all the rain. So he sends these soldiers to capture them, and, and Elijah says, if I am a prophet, may fire come down instantaneously. Fire comes down, and they're smoked. Okay, and yet it's the moment the words come out of his mouth. Why is his words bringing the fire? Because his words are the very words of God and are connected to God's fire. Now, whether these two witnesses bring miraculous fire like Elijah did through their prophetic word or whether they bring uh, fire like Jeremiah did, which is more metaphorical, there's a lot of debate amongst commentaries and I don't really think it matters because either way, the prophecy is just as authoritative. Let me read you how it's worded for Jeremiah. Jeremiah 5.14 says to Jeremiah, God says, Because you speak this word, behold, I will make my words in your mouth fire, and this people wood, and it shall devour them. So his prophetic words are called fire. Now, obviously, with Jeremiah, it was a metaphor, right? Because it wasn't literal fire that came out of his mouth, it goes on to indicate that because of the prophecy, it guaranteed Babylon would come and destroy and burn up, uh, uh, burn up Jerusalem. So his words powerfully brought that burning. But in both cases, the miraculous and the non-miraculous, the power to consume was in the prophet's mouth. And in both cases, the prophetic word was likened to fire. So you're getting the point here. These two last prophets are New Testament prophets, and yet their prophecy has exactly the same character as the prophecies of Old Testament prophets. Verse 6 continues. They have authority to shut up the sky so that no rain falls during the days of their prophecy. Now, all commentaries say that's an obvious allusion, comparison to Elijah, who at his word the sky is dried up and there was no more rain. At his word, the rain started again. Verse 6 goes on, and they have authority over the waters to turn them into blood. Almost everyone says this is comparing these prophets to Moses. Moses, who turned the waters of Egypt into blood. Now, in past sermons, I gave testimony from history that shows that there was water literally turned to blood in Israel uh, in the first century, uh, I don't want to get distracted by fulfillment. Maybe uh, my next sermon, I might get into that to some degree. It's kind of fun stuff. But my point that I'm wanting to make this morning is that, that, that charismatics cannot claim that New Testament prophecy is any different than Old Testament prophecy like that of Moses. Okay, the prophecies themselves are equivalent to nature, power, and effect. Verse 6 continues, and to strike the earth with every plague as often as they wish. So again, these prophets seem to have power very similar to Moses, whose words and actions brought, these, uh, te uh, brought ten plagues. Now when you take all of the testimony together, you can see that the third wave charismatics are wrong in trying to downplay the authority and the infallibility of New Testament prophecy. Revelation 1 verse 3 calls the whole book of Revelation the words of this prophecy. The words of this prophecy. He is using the term prophecy in exactly the same way that the Old Testament was using the word prophecy. 
And uh, Wayne Grudem agrees. He just thinks, well, Revelation's unique. It's using it differently than the rest of the New Testament does. But um, when the book of Revelation uses the terms prophecy, prophet, and prophesy 21 times, I think we need to allow Revelation to inform the debate on the nature and the meaning of that term. Now, Grudem does not. He just dismisses the whole book of Revelation as being irrelevant to the debate. He claims that Revelation uses the terms differently. And in any case, he says, hey, it's an apostle who brings the prophecy in this book. And if he was not, uh, if his prophecies were not apostolic, then they would not have been infallible prophecies. It's simply because he's both an apostle and a prophet that his prophecies became uh, infallible. But this chapter shows that even nameless prophets are treated as having the same authority as Old Testament prophets, and they are lumped together as doing the same things as Moses, Elijah, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Zerubbabel, Joshua, John the Baptist, and all the other Old Testament prophets. And the objection might be, well, maybe they are apostles. Didn't you hint at that in your last sermon that one of them maybe possibly could have been apostles? Here's the point, though. Revelation doesn't call them apostles. It calls them prophets, and we're looking at how Revelation defines the term prophecy. Now, another person might object, okay, I agree, Phil, but maybe these are symbolic of the Old Testament and the New Testament. Two prophets, Old and New Testaments. And... Um, it's a corporate uh, uh, approach. Or people have said it's the, um, uh, it's a corporate church. Uh, there's, uh, Beale takes that position, that these two prophets represent the church of all ages. Okay, well then you could have continuing prophecy, but I would still insist it would have to be infallible prophecy, right? Infallible inspired authoritative revelation. And, um, None of those theories work, and that's one of the reasons why I spent an entire sermon identifying these two witnesses. We looked at all of the different theories out there on the witnesses, looked at the clues in Scripture. Remember, we had that chart that was laid out. Which ones fit every one of these clues? And we systematically ruled out every single alternative except two literal individuals who were literally prophets in a literal Jerusalem in the first century. That's the only theory that was left standing. And if you take all of the textual clues, I think there is no other possibility. So the question is, if New Testament prophets do not speak directly for Christ, as Grudem claims, okay, Grudem said he denies that they speak directly for Christ, why were they called his two witnesses and of his covenant lawsuit? To me, it seems that they are speaking directly for Christ. And if they're not inspired, why are their prophecies compared to the prophecies of uh, Zechariah's two olive trees, which were inspired, were producing the unadulterated prophetic words of God's uh, Holy Spirit? If they're supposedly so different from Old Testament prophets, why does he go to such lengths to compare them to ten other inspired vehicles of God's revelation? Grudem never really addresses the two witnesses. And, um, you know, I can see why. They totally destroy his thesis. Now, of course, I've already demonstrated in chapter 1, verse 3, that this is consistent with the usage of the term prophet and prophecy all the way through the book of Acts. We systematically looked at all kinds of verses in the book of Acts and saw how the New Testament prophet in the same verse is listed with an Old Testament prophet. They are, they are treated as being the same. Romans 16 does the same thing. It calls all New Testament scriptures that have been written so far the prophetic scriptures. Prophecy and scripture are clearly tied up together. They're linked. Now, Grudem says that Romans 16, verse 26 has to refer to the Old Testament. couldn't possibly refer to uh, the New Testament, uh, mainly because it uh, defeats his thesis. But I would say, okay, let's just assume you're right, Wayne Grudem. Um, it still begs the question of why Paul would use the word prophetic scriptures to describe the Old Testament if the term prophetic really has changed its meaning so radically that it no longer means something inspired. It begs the question. It really makes no sense. 
But Paul is quite clear that the revelation he is talking about is, quote, the revelation of the mystery kept secret since the world began, but now made manifest and by the prophetic scriptures made known. It was not until now that prophets and prophetic scriptures were making this mystery known. So it's clearly talking about New Testament scriptures. So Romans 16 verse 26 declares, and this is a very important point, Romans 16 verse 26 declares that every New Testament book of the Bible is a prophetic scripture. Okay? It was written by prophets. Just like all the books of the Old Testament were written by prophets. It's not just the book of Revelation that was written by a prophet, and it's declared to be written by a prophet in a number of places, but all of the New Testament is prophetic revelation. Yet Grudem has the audacity to claim, quote, to my knowledge, nowhere in the New Testament is there a record of a prophet who is not an apostle, but who spoke with absolute divine authority attaching to his very words. I'm thinking, okay, you've ignored all these other scriptures, but what about Luke? Was Luke an apostle? No, he was not an apostle. Were his words authoritative? Absolutely, yes, they were. What about James? Was he an apostle? No, he was not. You see, Peter defines prophecy for us in a way that completely contradicts Grudem's statement. Let me read Grudem again, and then I'm going to read 2 Peter 1, verse 21. Grudem said, To my knowledge, nowhere in the New Testament is there a record of a prophet who is not an apostle, but who spoke with absolute divine authority attaching to his very words. Uh, I think I've already demonstrated that's false, but let me show how Peter also contradicts this thesis. Peter insists that, quote, Prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. 2 Peter 1, verse 21. Notice the word spoke. You can't just dismiss that scripture and say, oh, yeah, yeah, that, that's just dealing with scripture. No, even their oral prophecies never came by man's will. It was completely, 100% moved by the Holy Spirit. No exceptions. He's defining what New Testament prophecy is here. According to Peter, there simply are not two kinds of prophecy. The word never does not allow for that. Prophecy was always inspired without exception. And this is why in Matthew 7, Jesus told his hearers that there were going to be false prophets who would come. And here's how you can tell who's a true prophet, who's a false prophet. He says you, you, you tell by uh, their fruit. And he says that a good tree will never produce bad fruit. Now, he's not saying prophets would never sin. It's, it's prophetic fruit he's talking about. He's saying a good tree will never produce bad fruit. So a prophetic tree, he's talking about prophets, will never produce bad prophetic fruit. It will always be 100% inspired. And I demonstrated in the previous sermon that Agabus was inspired and perfectly accurate in his prophecies and that it was actually Wayne Grudem who slandered that man. Now, I'm not going to cover that material again. I think it would take way too long. But if only apostles could write Scripture, as Grudem claims, how on earth did Mark, Luke, Acts, James, Jude come into existence when they were clearly not apostles? And the answer is easy for me. They were prophets. Romans 16 says that all the New Testament scriptures were written by prophets. Grudem disagrees. He insists that each of those authors wrote something down that was true, and it was written under apostolic oversight, and once the apostles looked at it, they put their imprimatur upon it, and it became inspired. That is not how inspiration works, according to Peter. That would be them being moved by their will, and then... And then you know, Peter or, or, or Paul or somebody else putting the imperturer upon it. Now, Peter says that it's the prophet himself, it's the individual himself who is writing, who never was moved by his own will, but was 100% moved by the Holy Spirit. So this is so important to understand. The integrity of Mark, Luke, Acts, James, and Jude comes into question if you take the apostolic-only view of New Testament Scripture. But 2 Peter 1.21, Romans 16.16 16 make it crystal clear that every New Testament book 
was a prophecy and that even oral prophecies of those prophets were 100% inspired. Now there are other ways in which the book of Revelation contradicts Grudem's thesis. Where Grudem claims you can safely ignore a New Testament era prophecy because, hey, it's not authoritative, right? According to him. Anybody who ignored the, the prophecies of these two prophets in chapter 11, oh boy, are they in deep trouble. You could not ignore their prophecies. Where Grudem claims over and over that modern prophecy is not the very words of Christ, this book claims the opposite. It, it, it speaks of the words of prophecy and claims that those words of prophecy constitute the testimony of Jesus Christ. They constitute the testimony of Jesus Christ. For example, Revelation 19 Revelation 19 and verse 10 says that other prophets, not John, but other prophets had the testimony of Jesus, and the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. He's defining what all prophecy is characterized by. He says, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Now, Mounts' commentary says of the second phrase, John's readers would certainly understand his reference to the spirit of prophecy in terms of the Holy Spirit as the one who inspired all prophecy. So that's the meaning of the second phrase, but what about the first phrase, testimony of Jesus? In a previous sermon, we saw that the phrase, the testimony of Jesus, found in chapter 1, verses 2 and 9, is a reference to what? The very words of Jesus. What the apostle John wrote was Jesus' words, Jesus' testimony. That's what testimony of Jesus means. Now, the inescapable conclusion of those two facts means that Revelation 19, verse 10, teaches us that the Holy Spirit, who inspired prophecy, brought the very words of Jesus Christ. Now, here's where it gets interesting. We've already seen that the whole book of Revelation is also the testimony of Jesus, yet Revelation 19, 10 says that all prophecy of all prophets is the testimony of Jesus. Can you see how even oral prophecies are equivalent to Scripture in nature? Oral prophecy was just as much the words of Jesus, the testimony of Jesus, as written prophecy was. It's God's very word to man through Christ's witnesses. Now, Grudem says he doesn't know what that verse means. That's very convenient. But ignorance is not good enough. The verse makes prophecy clearly parallel in authority with Scripture. Where Wayne Grudem says that a modern prophet can be 20% in error or 30% or even 40% wrong and still not be a false prophet, and wherever, as he says, quote, there is almost uniform testimony from all sections of the charismatic movement that prophecy is imperfect and impure and will contain elements that are not to be obeyed or trusted, unquote. That's his words, not mine. All true prophecy in the book of Revelation claims to be authoritative, including the prophecy of the unnamed prophets in chapter 11. And all prophecy in this book claims to be true. For example, Revelation 22, verse 6, says of the words given by the angel to John, these words are faithful and true, or some translated are reliable and true, or inerrant and true. You can look at it that way. These words are faithful and true, but the reason he gives in the second part of that verse as to why they are faithful and true is not because these words are given through an apostle. No, it's because the Lord of the spirits of the prophets is the one who gives those prophecies. That's why they're faithful and true. So he says, these words are faithful and true. The Lord God of the spirits of the prophets sent his angel to show to his slaves the things that must shortly take place. And I want you to notice the plural there. It's not just John who had these things revealed to him that he writes down in Revelation. All of the prophets were up in the heavenly council. They're all privy to these things. Okay, so they were faithful and true because God the Lord is the spirit of all prophets. So I know it's a lot of technical stuff that we've gone through here, but it is a very, very important uh, topic, and hopefully you can see that no prophecy, no prophecy, oral or written, was ever originating from man's will, but is instead infallible, inerrant, authoritative, and transformational. There is a unity of definition throughout the Bible on the nature of prophecy. You cannot drive a Grand Canyon-sized wedge between the Old Testament prophets and the New Testament prophets, as third-wave charismatics have done 
and actually have to do if they're going to take them as non-authoritative. Well, we've already seen that these are the last of the prophets, and verse 7 says, when they finish their witness, the beast of prey that comes up out of the abyss will make war with them, overcome them, and kill them. Now, we're, we're going to look at the details of that in a later sermon. But the first phrase needs to be interpreted in light of chapter 10, which prophesies the imminent closing of the canon, the imminent cessation of all mysteries. Chapter 10, verse 7 says, But in the days of the blast of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound, the mystery of God that he declared to his slaves the prophets would be finished. To Tetelestai, done with, all over, no more to be given. Now, I'm not going to repeat what I preached on that, on that text, but it was anticipating the ending of prophet and vision, just like Daniel, Isaiah, Zechariah, and other Old Testament prophets had anticipated. It would end uh, when the temple was destroyed. The Bible was perfect, completed, sufficient for life and godliness. By AD 70, there were only two witnesses, two lampstands, two olive trees left, and their witness was finished because the scriptures were finished. And this book ends by saying, For I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. And to get more uh, details on other scriptures that deal with the ending of the prophecy, you, uh, just reread my sermon on Revelation 10, uh, verse 7. So the obvious application we can make is we've got a perfect, completed Bible that's sufficient for everything we need for life and godliness. Uh, another application that we could make is that we should not call our premonitions, our guidance, our dreams prophecy. Call it something else, but don't call it prophecy. They may be of the Lord, but they're on an altogether different plane from prophecy. Though useful as guidance, they're not authoritative. Now, I'm not denying the experiences that some charismatics have had. I'm just denying that they are prophetic in any sense of the word. We need to allow Scripture to define its own terms, and New Testament Scripture clearly defines prophecy as being on a par with Old Testament prophecy and the Scripture. Well, let me end by quickly giving some further applications. First, while God calls some to flee persecution, he calls others to enter the lion's lair, and we should not judge either group. Now, it's very obvious that these two witnesses were called by God to go into the city at a dangerous time, and it was just as clear that Matthew 24, he commanded most believers to flee from the city and in chapter 12, verse 6, they flee. And in chapter 12, verses 14 through 17, you see a lengthy description of how God blesses their fleeing from the city. Now, let me, let me just apply this. The, 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 the Puritans who left England and came to the Americas, they were fleeing persecution, and they wanted to set a city, have a, you know, establish a city set on a hill and, and, and be a testimony to the world of what a Christian civilization could look like. They felt really bad that a lot of the Puritans refused to come with them. And they said, we need you here in America. And the Puritans who stayed in Britain, they said, no, you're leaving this country to go to hell. We need you here in England. And there were families who were divided. Some of the family would stay in England. Some of the family came to America. And there was a lot of tension that was felt. Now, here's my point. When you study the history of that period, it is very clear that God himself was calling the groups of people to go, some to America, some to stay in England, and both countries needed that. And I think we just need to have a little bit of charity and non-judgmentalism between preppers who flee the city and preppers who feel called to stay in the city, okay? There is a place for both actions. Now, you might die if you stay in the city, but there is a place for both actions, okay? The second application is that this chapter shows that it is God's will for the Word of God to be brought into culture even when culture doesn't want you to bring it into culture, okay? We know from history that the Christians brought the Word of God to bear in Pella when they fled to Pella. It's not like they were escapists. They were bringing the Word of God there, and it was causing a little bit of upheaval. 
these witnesses bring God's word to bear in Jerusalem. 144,000 bring God's word all over the world after A.D. 70. God does not call for pluralism or neutrality in the public sphere. He calls for all things to submit to King Jesus, and we must not be embarrassed by the word of God. The third application is that if even prophets had no authority except for the authority of God's revelation, then we have no authority except for what authority we receive from God's revelation, which in our case is the Bible, right? Uh, the Puritans used to say to the effect that the only voice that should be heard in the pulpits of the church is the word of Christ speaking through the scriptures. Now, unfortunately, the church has not done that. The church has abandoned the prophetic scriptures for the wisdom of man on issue after issue. Rather than defining leadership, for example, from the scripture, they define it by our cultural standards, conservative or liberal, uh, by egalitarianism or, or feminism. Actually, even Reconstructionists have recently begun to become radically egalitarian in their definition of, of, um, uh, of leadership. And I just finished reading a book that is radically egalitarian, and he gets his ideas from, see if I'm pronouncing this right, Ayn Rand. Um, not from the Bible, from Ayn Rand, libertarianism. Uh, there are so many other areas in which people speak authoritatively without referring to the Scripture to back it up. Rather than counseling by scriptural methods and goals and patterns, what do they do? They go to psychology. Rather than worship regulated by the Word of God, what are they appealing to? The seeker. What does the seeker want? On marriage, child-rearing, economics, politics, science, so many other areas, people will go to an expert that everybody admires in the world, but that's in Satan's kingdom, and that expert becomes their authority. No, the only authority we have is the authority of God's Word. And if you are an authority figure, whether it's a parent or a deacon or an elder or a civic officer, you need to recognize the only authority you have is the authority that God himself has given to you in the Bible. We must represent Christ, not ourselves. The fourth application is that the safest place to be is in the center of God's will. It is true that these prophets had entered into Jerusalem, which at that point, when you look at the factions that were fighting and killing each other off in the city, it was probably the most dangerous place to be in the entire empire. And yet, they're impervious to everything. The leaders, the Jewish leaders, are trying to kill them. And for three and a half years, they're unable. They are, they are impervious to any attacks that come against them. And yet, the moment they have finished... God's work for them on earth, they finish their witness, God allows the enemy to kill them. Now, my takeaway on this is that you cannot die one minute before it's God's time for you to die. Don't fear death. Be bold as a lion as you get about doing God's will. He can protect you in the city. He can protect you in the country, in a war zone, in a peace zone. But if you are rebelling against God's will, then no place you flee to is safe and no amount of prepping you do is going to save you. The safest place to be is in the center of God's will. And if you know what God's will is for you in His Word and you're doing it, just relax. Don't worry about the future. Relax in God's protection. Now, don't excuse the fact that God is sovereign for lack of preparation on your part. That is a part of His will, right? If you're not doing some preparation, you're not in the center of his will because his word commands us to prepare uh, to navigate his judgments upon a society. So I think that is important, but ultimately your trust must be in God, not your prepping. The fifth application is that all things in God's creation are servants to his will. These prophets speak, fire destroys the enemy. These prophets speak and the rain no longer blesses them. These prophets speak in water that previously was drinkable is now turned to blood. These prophets speak and plagues come upon the people, and the plagues may have involved insects, may have involved disease. When you speak the imprecatory psalms, which God has authorized us to speak against God's enemies, that prophetic word 
continues to have that kind of power. Okay? That by itself ought to be encouraging. God's Word, the Bible, is powerful for tearing down strongholds. But this application is that all of creation is a servant of God's will, and we should not fear tornadoes, earthquakes, famines. If you lived in California, you know, falling off into the coast, you should not fear earth as if earth somehow is independent of God and can somehow uh, contradict God's will in our lives. It cannot. You can have a total faith that God controls the world that you step on. Now, the last application is that we can count on conflict when God's word comes into an anti-God society. Do not at all be surprised at hatred and opposition. Verse 5 has the Jews trying to harm them. Verse 7 has a demon from the pit finally succeeding in killing them. Now, demons were behind all of the opposition anyway, right? But it's expected because the light of prophetic word, which is the scripture, when it exposes the darkness in Satan's kingdom, there's going to be pushback. They don't like that. You can, fi- you can find backlash. You can count on it. Now, my application is to not withdraw from society in order to avoid hostile reactions, but to see yourselves as soldiers of the cross who are responsible to penetrate and to be faithful witnesses to Scripture. You aren't directly witnesses of Christ who bring new revelation, but you are witnesses to the Bible, the revelation he's already given. And we're called not to be ashamed of him and his word, or he'll be ashamed of us. So see the boldness of the two witnesses as a good paradigm for your own boldness in our ungodly culture. And may God use your prophetic witness. And by that I mean your scriptural witness, right? That's our prophetic witnesses, our scriptural witness. Um, May he use that to bring about his will. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word and the guide that it gives to us and that it is sufficient for faith and practice that uh, it has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. That uh, your word, as uh, uh, 2 Timothy 3.16 says, is sufficient to thoroughly equip the man of God for every good work. Help us to become more and more skilled by your illumination in navigating your word and applying it to culture and applying it into our own lives. And I pray that we would rejoice in its sufficiency. In Jesus' name, amen.